Good afternoon. We're in Philippians chapter 4. There is a bunch of great stuff in chapter 4. It's hard to believe we're already to the last chapter of the book. I'd encourage you during the week to take time to, to read this. If you read through the whole book, that's great. If you could read through chapter 4, it's great as well. It helps you kind of get some more context. Because we come into this and we look at a lot of a lot of detail. And we want you to keep the wider context of that. So I'd encourage you during the week to do that. So, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Let's follow along as I read that. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The grass withers, the flower fades. The The last statement of the text that we looked at last week was that we are citizens of, of heaven. It reminded us that our our bodies will be transformed. It also reminded us of this glorious future that we have with Christ, in Christ. And so when our text today begins with this word, therefore, it's giving us this encouragement based on the end result, based on this future reality that we know to be true. It's similar to what a a personal trainer might do when he says, don't give up. Remember the goal. Remember where we're going to that. And and that's what we're, we're seeing here is, So as strange as it might sound, it's really a call to remember the future for us. What Paul wants to motivate us towards is standing firm in the Lord. If you look at verse 1 again, I know we just read it, but I want to read it again. Follow along and get it fresh in your mind. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul loves the Philippians. He never stops telling them just how much he loves them. He calls them his joy and crown. This term crown is a statement about these people being the result of his life. Proverbs 17.6 says, grandchildren are the crown of the aged. It's this legacy. It's someone's life that remains long after they have died. And Paul is communicating that, that he's proud of the Philippians. He's poured into them, and he's seeing them follow Christ, and it brings him great joy to see that. And it, it really sounds odd in some regard that, that he would have this sense of pride for them since really their faith is a work of God in their lives, right? But it's sort of like the farmer, the one that you see in the paper who's standing next to this 2,000-pound record-breaking pumpkin with this big goofy smile on his face and really... You see this, and you see how proud he is of this pumpkin, and all the while you, you realize that God made that pumpkin. God made that pumpkin to grow huge, so why is this farmer so proud? And I think it's the same reason, because this pumpkin grew in the field that he was tending. The farmer planted it. The farmer tore out weeds. The farmer sought to keep things from bringing it harm. The farmer tended to this pumpkin. And that's Paul. He knows full well that it's God who has grown their faith. But he's planted seeds in Philippi and he's protected them. And the growth that God has given them 
is this crown. It's a legacy in his life, something he looks at with this sense of pride because of what God has done. He says something real similar to that in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. There he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And I hope that you see that we should not be afraid to pour our lives into others. Also, it's right for us to rejoice when God produces fruit through our ministry and through our discipling of people. And so I hope you understand just how much Paul loves them. Because that love that Paul has for them, that love is what motivates Paul in the correction that we see in verses 2 and 3. Simply put, love confronts. If we're walking near the edge of a cliff and I see you stumble and falling towards the edge of that cliff, what is the action of love? It's not doing nothing. It's not stepping aside. It's confrontation. It's me stepping in front of you. It's pushing you back the other way. It's grabbing a hold of your clothes and yanking you back to a place of safety. And really, it doesn't matter if you have stumbled into that position towards the edge or if you are intentionally standing there intending to jump off. The action of love is to confront you. And it might seem rough at the time, but the motivation of godly confrontation is love. One of the quirky things about Presbyterian government is that my membership, the same with John, is, is not in the local church. We are not members here. Uh, it's in the presbytery, and that means that uh, other pastors and elders have made a commitment to hold us accountable. These are men that are holding me accountable to my calling as a Christian and to my calling as a pastor, and that commitment that they have made to me means if I go nuts, if I go completely psycho, and this should be a comfort to you, if I stray from the path, if I teach heresy, if I fail to, to shepherd my family or fail to shepherd you in a way that is, that is acceptable and, and right, then they have vowed to confront me. Even if I am defensive, even if I'm angry, even if I don't want this, and one of the things we see in this is that confrontation is, is difficult. And what I really want you to understand here is confrontation Correction should be the action of love. And, and that's what we see in Paul here. He loves the church in Philippi enough to not leave them alone. I want you to follow along again as we look at verses 2 and 3 again. And then we're going to look at what's going on here. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. First, can we acknowledge how incredibly awkward this situation must have been? These two women are mentioned only here in all of Scripture. It's the kind of thing you think you want, your name mentioned in Scripture, until it happens like this. Euodia's name literally means sweet scent. And Syntyche means fortunate which I find completely ironic since her name is being recorded in this manner, which is unfortunate. So this is awkward because if you remember, this letter was delivered by Epaphroditus. He comes into town and he brings it to the church and here's what we've got. And everyone gets together. Uh, in the very first week, if you remember, we read this whole letter out loud. And, and you can imagine that. They're, they're really listening to this. And, and, you know, chapter one, that's great. It wouldn't have been chapters, but chapter two, ah, that's fantastic. Chapter three, what encouragement. Chapter four, whoa, that was embarrassing. 
these two women are sitting there and they hear their names called out publicly. Now, can you imagine if I was reading this letter and I said something like, I entreat Heather and I entreat Chloe to agree in the Lord. That would be incredibly embarrassing for everyone to be sitting here and to hear about y'all's problems. For the record, as far as I know, you guys have no problem with each other. If so, it's prophetic, just kidding. So looking at our text, there's a couple of things I want you to see here. First, these women are in the midst of a dispute. That part's obvious, right? We don't know the details of it. We don't know. Maybe uh, Syntyche put a snarky comment on Facebook about her. I don't know. Maybe Euodia felt that, you know, they were working on this project and she did all the work and the other one was a bum. We don't know what it is. And I love that we don't know what it is because it's not hard for us to imagine a dispute because most of us have had a dispute with a brother or sister in Christ. This particular situation, I want you to notice, is is with women, but men, it speaks to you as well. You're not out on this. Uh, I mean, who here hasn't had a struggle to get along with a fellow Christian? You don't raise your hand. I don't know that any of you could raise your hand. Imagine your, your feelings are hurt or... You're feeling left out in some way. Some sort of dispute is going on. And the possibilities are really endless as to how fellowship and unity can be broken over a simple dispute. Now, the second thing I want you to notice here is the use of this word entreat. Entreat means to plead with someone to do something. And so he's pleading with them to do something. In this case, to work out their dispute. And if you look close, you'll notice the word is repeated before each woman's name. There's some distinction here, and they're making clear that both are stuck in their way. Both of them need to move from the stubborn place that they're in. And this shows us that Paul's not taking sides. Which one of these women is wrong? We don't see. We don't know. And one thing that tells us is this is not about a doctrinal dispute. You can believe if it were, Paul would have said something. Uh, We also have no reason to believe that one woman sinned against the other. The dispute is, however, a a real threat to the unity in the church of Philippi. And that's why he's calling them out. The unity of the church is that important. We've heard Paul talk about unity throughout this book, and now he's getting down to what this means in a very specific local church body way. It's an encouragement to both of them to adopt the humility of Christ to work together for unity that Paul's been talking about throughout this book. And the third thing I want you to notice is that these are good women. The fact that they're being called out for a dispute makes it easy for us to characterize them negatively. But if we really look at what Paul's saying about them, we really can't deny the quality of these two women. If you remember last week, we looked at people who were walking as enemies of the cross, people who confessed Christ but who failed to show any fruit of actually possessing faith. These two ladies were not included in that statement at all. In fact, here Paul makes reference to their names being in the book of life. That's where you want your name. Paul's not questioning their faith. He's confident that they both love Christ, and that's why he expects them to work together towards this this peace. And Paul also shares that they have labored side by side with him in the gospel. These women are gospel ministry partners of Paul. And so let's resist the temptation to vilify these two people. Understand that they simply have a lingering dispute with each other, which needs to be worked out. That could happen to any of us. And what Paul tells them to do is to agree in the Lord. It's the exact same phrase we saw back in Philippians 2.2 when Paul tells the church 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with, with one mind. Uh, so what was this general statement? Be of the same mind now becomes this very specific statement. And this indicates that these two women, more than anyone at this very moment that he's writing it, need to put into practice what he was teaching them in Philippians 2.2. And that was what it means to consider others as more important than yourselves. And so Paul says to these two, get together and work it out. Pretty simple. Uh, one thing that's clear here is that this dispute is being brought to public attention. Because the conflict between these two women is not just their business anymore. It's the business of the rest of the church because it's a threat against the unity of the whole body to which they belong. And at this point, he's even calling a third person to help them figure things out. And so we don't know who the third person is. It's, it's not mentioned. We get this vague statement. It's a good thing, but there's no name. He refers to this person only as my true companion. It's a good nickname. Who that really is doesn't matter. The significance of that is it's just that a third person's being called in to help them work through this. Sometimes we need outside help. So let's bring this section together. The big deal is that the disunity between these two people in the church is a threat to greater disunity in the congregation. And that is where I want this passage to hit us, to really hit home. Because do you understand that you are a threat to the unity of the church? So am I. So are all of us. Do you think when these ladies first came into the community that they thought they were going to be called out publicly for a dispute between each other? No. We come in with the idea that everything will go perfect. And so here it is. What we need to learn from this, if or when we have relational conflict, will be this, that we make it a priority to work it out. We can't let it linger. And this includes issues between friends, issues in your marriage, your small group, all sorts of other relationships. If you find yourself in a dispute, will you meet with that person to work it out? Because we don't want this to fester and threaten disunity in the entire congregation. If, if that doesn't work, will you ask for help? Will you ask a neutral third person in the congregation to help you work it out? Will you, will you ask the leadership for help in working towards peace if needed? And the flip side of that is, are you willing to help others? Are you prepared to use what we know from the Word of God to help people reconcile disputes with each other? Can you help someone who's upset with a sister or brother in Christ understand that that person's name is written in the book of life? If there's one thing we learned over and over in this book, it's that unity must be a priority in the body of Christ. Now, Paul is confident that these ladies will work out their dispute. And he now changes in verse 4 the direction. He reminds the whole congregation of something else that's very important. Verse 4 reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I always point out the verses that nobody puts on their wall. This is one people do put on their wall. This call to rejoice, in fact, eight times in this book, and it's not a very long book, eight times he calls them to rejoice. It seems easy. But let me ask you, do you wake each morning just rejoicing in the Lord? Some of you might. We used to lead a, a summer camp for high school students, and in the early years I'd wake the guys up in my cabin by, by singing this song, 
The cows go moo in the morning. The cows go moo in the morning. Some of you are having nightmares. I can see Chris's. I could sing the whole thing. I won't. It didn't take long for me to realize that people do not wake up rejoicing. In fact, they mostly woke up requesting in no uncertain terms that the song come to an end quickly. In recent years at camp, when we'd gather for breakfast, we'd start the day by singing Psalm 118, 24. This is the day. I'm a horrible singer. I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And it's one of those things you wake up and you sing it, and the first time you go through it, it kind of annoys you. And then you kind of feel it. Okay, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice. And um, it is. I love that we would sing that because it's such a great reminder of the need to be rejoicing in the Lord. And see, in our text, and in many other places in Scripture, the call to rejoice is, is this command. It's something God is calling us to do. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. It's one of the shorter verses in all the Bible. And it reads simply, rejoice always. See, I bet you just memorize a verse today. Psalm 70, verse 4 says of God, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. The scriptures are full of these statements that call for us to rejoice in God, to praise God, to delight in God, and so on. And I, I think if we look close at our text today, it's, it's easy to see this as this great thing and yet a heavy weight of responsibility because it's telling us something that we should do that is an emotion. It's telling us in whom are we to rejoice? In the Lord. How often do we rejoice? Always. And then we look at our own lives and we realize we're not very good at that. It's very clear what we're to do, but it's not real clear how we're to do that. In fact, it looks like an unfair command of God because rejoicing, like I said, is an emotion and we can't really control our emotions. Can we? I mean, let's... Look at that. Let's consider that. The, the dictionary defines rejoice as to feel or to show great joy or delight. But what controls that emotion, that feeling? You ever notice that when someone does something rude to you, your emotions regarding it can swing? You talk to one person who tells you, you have every right to be angry. That you need to rip into that person. Let them know how you feel. You know, they should never do that to you. And, you. and you walk away and your emotion is just this anger. You know, justified. I'm ready to rip into this person anger. And then you talk to another person about the exact same situation. And they help you understand that the offender, you know, they, they maybe didn't mean it to be that rude. They, they remind you, you know, you remember what that person is going through in their life right now? And, and they help you understand how you might respond with, with love and patience and instead of anger. And your emotion for the exact same event suddenly has changed. You're still hurt about what they did to you, but yet you feel this compassion for them. See, the, the two people speaking in those moments, really speaking into your life in those moments, are, are shaping our emotions. And it's because of the message that they are speaking to our hearts. We've got a, a men's group that meets on Saturday mornings, and right now we're reading a book called Gospel Treason. It's about confronting the idols of our hearts. And this past Saturday, we discussed the topic of how we should interact with our own hearts. Not, not the fleshly muscle inside of our chest. That's not a good idea to do that yourself. But the core of our feelings, of, of who we really are, uh, right at the, the core. You see, Somewhere along the, line, along the way, even in the church, we began to accept this cultural statement that says to be truly yourself, you must 
follow your heart. I'm sure you've heard this because it's in just about every movie that's ever been made. Follow your heart. I was in Target the other day and it's on a Frozen shirt. Follow your heart. The moment comes in the movies where the main character is not sure what he or she should do and and then that special person in your life comes and encourages them. Just follow your heart. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? It sounds beautiful, but what it really means is follow your feelings that you're feeling right now. It means don't listen to anything or anyone. Just do what you feel like doing right now. It's a lie that says let your feelings determine right and wrong. Let your feelings determine what you will rejoice in. And so while Disney and cheesy movies everywhere might advise that we follow our hearts, God, who actually created your heart, has different advice. Different advice for how we are to interact with our hearts. Jeremiah 17.9 is pretty straightforward regarding our hearts. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs 28.26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. That word mind in that verse in Hebrew is literally heart. And so really it reads this, Whoever trusts in his heart is a fool. Proverbs 23.19 makes clear that we ought not to follow our hearts. Listen as I read and consider what it does tell us we should do with our hearts. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Brad Bigney, the author of the book we've been reading, had this great quote. He says, go to our heart and inspect it and direct it, but don't dare follow it. Go there to rein it in. Don't go there listening. Go there talking and speaking truth from God's word. So now with the remainder of our time, I want to go over a few specific biblical truths that I I think we can use to guide our heart. Because as I read this text, I didn't want you to walk away with a sense of rejoice, 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 and have no idea how to do that and to feel that heavy weight on you. This is a sort of how to rejoice in the Lord, and it's not a complete list, but something to get us thinking about why are there reasons to rejoice, the ways to, to shepherd our hearts, to speak to our hearts. Number one. There's seven of these. Remind your heart that God is amazing. What I mean is look up at the sky on a moonless, clear evening. Look at those stars and be amazed at God. Or consider how a butterfly is transformed from a caterpillar. It turns to liquid. It's amazing. Stare at your hand. Like, do this. Put your hand up in front of you. And try to make sense out of the fact that your brain is making your finger move with great precision. Ponder the miracle of reproduction. Or consider just the perfect distance that the planet we are on is from the sun right now. Or go watch the way a spider weaves a web. Or how water gets from the ocean to the mountains and back to the ocean. You know, look at what God has created and be absolutely amazed at all that he is for us. Two, remind your heart that God has redeemed you. That he's redeemed you through the blood of Christ. The emotion you should feel is, holy cow, I am unworthy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. When, when I die, I will still be alive and I'll be with Jesus and I'll be with other saints and I'll finally have this tangible understanding of paradise that goes on forever and ever and ever. 
What we learn from the scriptures is that life's not fair. What we deserve is hell, and what we receive in Christ in the gospel is salvation. Uh, the gift of faith means that your name is in the book of life. And if you really understand that, how could your heart not naturally rejoice in the Lord? Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18 is this beautiful picture. The author expresses that everything in his life is terrible. That's not what's beautiful. It's the rest of it. He, he's expressing, you know what? He has no wealth. He has no food. But I want you to see how he responds to even this situation. It reads, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Listen to this. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Number three, not only are we redeemed for all of eternity, but right now life is better than we deserve. Sometimes I ask people, how's it going? Or what's, you know, how are you doing? And, and the response is, better than I deserve. I used to cringe at that statement because it sounded so cheesy. And if you haven't figured it out, I don't like cheesy things. But the more I thought about that phrase, the, the more it really is pretty accurate. I mean, money might be tight in your life. I might be facing some health issues or struggling against sin in my life, but you know things really are better than I deserve. Uh, there's going to be ups and downs in your life. And the truth of the gospel is like, like the roots of a tree for us. In the spring, the trees are green, and they stay that way through the summer. And then in the fall, the trees are beautiful. And in the winter, though, life seems tough for these trees. Their branches are bare. The birds no longer perch and sing on them. But their roots are this reason to rejoice. They, they have life. The roots are giving this foundation. They are, they're spread through the ground, and spring will come again. That's like the gospel for us. You may face some difficult winters in your life, but if your roots are in the gospel, then life is there. There's promise of a coming spring. Fourth biblical truth we speak to our hearts is this. God is sovereign. John MacArthur once described Christian joy as the emotion springing from the deep down confidence that God is in perfect control. Your heart needs to know this. Not only that God is sovereign, but that he loves you. I think sometimes in Reformed circles, we can have confidence in God's sovereignty and fail to realize that he loves you. That's why we can rejoice. Even in difficult situations, God is really in control and working all things for our good. That's the promise of Romans 8.28 for our lives as children of God. And remember, Paul is writing the Philippians from prison, a prison where he doesn't know if he's going to live or be put to death. So it's not like he doesn't understand this situation. Five, speak to your heart and remind it that to rejoice in the Lord is a fruit of the Spirit. I remember someone once telling me, unregenerate people can't control their feelings. They, they just can't. And that's why I want you to remind your heart that you are regenerate. And as a result of that, God has filled you with his Holy Spirit. This is a real thing. And as a result of that, you have the fruit that we read about in Galatians 5.22, which includes self-control and patience and the feeling of joy. Guide your heart with the truth that the Holy Spirit is at work in you right now. Six, do you only see the sin of others or do you rejoice in the active obedience of others? 
See, it's, it's easy for us when we see a sister or a brother in Christ fail to be so disappointed. And yet, my question is, do you seek to rejoice in the act of obedience when you see it in people? It's a glorious thing that we sometimes just completely overlook. You see, in a, a covenant family, when someone is obeying God in their life, this is reason to rejoice in the mighty work of God. Also, Luke 15.10 speaks of the angels rejoicing this way. It says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so let us rejoice when we see repentance. Yes, the angels are speaking of in the case of conversion, but also when, when believers repent. Rejoice in that moment, for that is a work of the Holy Spirit of God and his children. There are many more biblical truths that we can use to preach to, to the Lord. To Drew's point, as she was speaking earlier, that it doesn't change how much God loves you, but, but it changes how much we understand our love for him and how much we understand his love for us. That's part of being in the word, and we need to be in the word if we're going to be able to really shape and direct our hearts in the way we need to. The last one I'll give you is this. Recount the wonderful blessings of God to you. The author of Psalm 71, 23 says to God, My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. Take notice of the blessings in your life. I don't mean this in some inauthentic, pretend everything's perfect kind of way, but, but make yourself aware of the blessings in your life. I don't like social media much. I use it. I don't love it. One exception to that is what I've seen a number of you doing this 100 days of happy. And I remember uh, Julia last semester doing this wall of positivity. And I love these things because these projects are bringing to focus these amazing blessings of God in our lives. And I'm encouraged when I see even other people doing this. So really, it's kind of like the theme of the song we're going to sing here in a moment, 10,000 Reasons, to keep our heart and, and keep reminding ourselves of the amazing blessings that God has given to us. May our rejoicing in the Lord not be swayed by the world around us, but may it remain firm as it is. May we remain firm, rejoicing in the Lord. My encouragement here is, yes, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. And it's also something God has given us as we direct our hearts, as we shape our hearts, as we speak to our hearts. We don't obey our hearts, but we speak to them and guide them. 